Again for joining me here on this episode of the Free Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela, and in this episode, we're going to continue our look at the Reformed Doctrines of Grace, also known as Calvinism. Remember, you can sign up to be a sponsor for the show by heading over to the blog and clicking on the Become a Sponsor link at the top of the homepage. A donation of any amount would be really helpful to the improvement of the quality of these episodes. Now, I'm also trying to post all of these episodes on Calvinism pretty rapidly because uh, systematic theology, it's not typically the topic for this show here, but I do want to get these concepts in place before we address some other apologetic and philosophical issues such as the problem of pain and theodicy and Molinism and some other concepts. So we need to get these in place. Now, this episode is not going to be dealing with one of the doctrines directly, uh, one of the doctrines from TULIP. Uh, But now that we've explored unconditional election, we need to understand what the atonement was before we ask who it was applied to. We'll talk about that in just a moment on the other side of this song break. So let's dive right into this episode where we ask the question, was the atonement of Christ accomplished or merely offered at the cross? Enjoy the show. As we saw last time, the doctrines of Calvinism are um, kind of what I'm describing as some Russian nesting dolls. So um, some people talk about it as tulip. It's like a a flower. It's the five petals. They're all related. I prefer to talk about it like the Russian nesting doll, where each one is drawn from without of the other one. they're, They're logically consistent with each other. They build on each other and they go. This is why... I think a lot of these conversations about Calvinism stall out or they turn into really frustration because people are trying to jump right into limited atonement or right into irresistible grace. And they're skipping over a lot of these foundational concepts and verses and passages that you need to get in place to really understand um, some of the biblical concepts uh, that we're dealing with. So uh, the Russian nesting dolls is a really good example. So we find um, starting out with total depravity. Total depravity is like the starting ground, so to speak. So total depravity, again, says that we are dead in our sins, that we are spiritually unable to affect our own salvation, that we're not, we're not sick, we're not unhealthy, we're not you know, just uh, to err as human. No, we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. We believe the Bible when it says that we are dead. We cannot do anything to affect our own salvation. So then Calvinism comes along and says, okay, well, if we're dead in our sins, what has to happen in order for us to be redeemed, to be saved, to be reconciled to God? What has to, what has to take place? Well, since we can't save ourselves, since we're not able to choose God because we're dead in our sins and trespasses, we'll see that. We'll see some of this uh, having to do with choice and not choice when we get to irresistible grace. But 
The, the answer comes, well, if we can't choose God, God has to choose us. And that was unconditional election. God chooses us based on his, uh, on his uh, predestination, based on his good and sovereign will, not for known faith, not foreseen faith, not based on any merit or anything that we do. It's based completely on the good grace and loving mercy of God. Right? So, so then what happens? So God chooses those who he's going to redeem. Then what happens? Well, Calvinism is going to say uh, that he accomplishes redemption for those, for those elect. But before we get there, we have to ask a question. We have to find out, well, what does the Bible say that the atonement was? What did Christ, what was, what was he doing on the cross? Was Christ uh, actually accomplishing atonement? Or was he setting up a situation where atonement was offered? Was he an actual savior or just a potential savior? To put it another way, the extent of the atonement is to be understood in light of the intent of the atonement. Let me say that again. The extent of the atonement, how far it reaches, who it affects, is to be understood in light of the intent of the atonement. What it's, what it's meant for, what it's intended for. Well, what is it intended for? What does the Bible teach happened on the cross? Uh, we're going to be looking at a lot of Bible verses. Again, if you hear me kind of flipping through pages, I'm sorry. I'm going to try to edit some of that out uh, if there's long pauses. So it might be a little choppier, but uh, you might hear me kind of turn into pages uh, as we go. Uh, the first thing that the Bible tells us is that the atonement accomplishes propitiation. The atonement accomplishes propitiation. Well, what is propitiation? Propitiation is not a word we typically use. It's not uh, one we use all the time in our daily life because it's not a concept we use a lot of time in our daily life. Propitiation is the turning away of due wrath. It, it, it means that uh, you are um, an object of wrath. Wrath is due to you. Uh, but someone has, has, has uh, fulfilled the requirements. They've turned away the wrath of God. All right, so what are some of the biblical passages? Well, we know that we're objects of wrath. If we look at uh, Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1 verses 18 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Well, who was that before we were saved? That's us. Before we're redeemed in Christ, we are wicked. We're sinful. We suppress the truth in ungodliness. Uh, we, we see in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That includes me. That includes you, whether we like it or not. Uh, that includes us uh, apart from Jesus Christ. Uh, Romans 5.9. Romans 5.9 is interesting. It says, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? How much more will we be saved from God's wrath? We have a wrath problem, right? Sometimes we sometimes we 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 forget the other side of the coin. We think, oh well, God is just God is just all loving. He's just kind of this miserly old man. He's just sitting there offering us love, 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 love. And as long as we accept God's love, then we're good, right? But that doesn't answer the question: What in the world was Christ doing on the cross? You don't, you don't need 
a cross. You don't need blood. You don't need death if it's just love. Now, I'm not saying that God is not, I'm, I'm not trying to diminish the love of God. The love of God is infinite. It's, mag, it's magnificent. We can't, we can't fathom how much God loves us, but God's a just God. Our sin deserves just wrath. So part of what Christ accomplished uh, through him, we will be saved from the wrath of God. He has propitiated God's wrath. He has made God propitious towards us. And he continues in Romans 5.10, it follows, For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Right? It continues on, we were enemies of God. That's in the passive voice. The, the, we're, we're, we're passively, that we're, just, we're just objects. We are recipients of God's holy displeasure before we're found in Jesus Christ. And look what it's saying. It's saying, for if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled. While we were sinners, while we were dead in our sins, Christ was reconciling us on the cross. He wasn't just making reconciliation possible. He wasn't just offering it. He was actually reconciling us. When? Not at the moment of faith. As the Armenians would say, we're not reconciled at the moment of faith. We are reconciled on the cross of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. That's when our reconciliation was accomplished. We'll talk about that later on. But it was accomplished. We were enemies and we were reconciled. We, Christ was the propitiation. He turned away the wrath of God that were due to the enemies of God. We're not, we weren't, we're not lovers of God before Christ. We are passive recipients of God's wrath. And then in Christ, we are passive recipients of God's love. We are dry bones. We are dead. And he loves us. Uh, let's look at Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 says, All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. That's us. We are under a curse. We are under God's wrath. We are under his disdain when we are apart from Jesus Christ. We are cursed. Uh, Ephesians 2.2 is another interesting one. We're going to see Ephesians come up a lot um, kind of sporadically uh, through this through this section. Um, Ephesians 2.2, 2, starting, well, sorry, back in verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Dead. Dead. D-E-A-D, dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sin. Not sick in your sins, not unwell, not tired, not sick and tired. You were dead. You were dry bones. You were in the grave. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in all those who are disobedience. All of us also lived among them one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But, it's a big but, but, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. By the passive, made us. We're not active in that. We, we, are, we are recipients. We are Remember, we're dead. We can't do anything. We are Lazarus. 
made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. When did he make us alive? When we were dead in our transgressions. Who did it? God did. Is it a response to faith? No. How do I know that? Because it continues to say, it is by grace you have been saved. Grace. Unmerited. Unmerited favor. That's God acting on our behalf while we were dead in our trespasses. When did that happen? On the cross, in Christ. He was the one who was active. Let's look at another one. We're going to look at 1 John 2.2. 2. Now, 1 John 2.2 2 is a pretty common Arminian verse they're going to look at. Um, there's going to be, we're, going to, we're going to look at this passage a, a couple times as we go throughout this series. Um, but, it's, but it's important to ask the question, why do we need an advocate? 1 John 2.2 2 says, talking of Jesus Christ, He is the atoning sacrifice for your sins. By the way, in some verses that says he is the propitiation for your sins. He is the propitiation because propitiation translates atoning sacrifice. We'll talk about what that means here in a second. But he is the propitiation. He is the atoning sacrifice for your sins, not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, the Armenians going to want to point this and say, see, he died for the whole world. None of this Calvinist limited atonement nonsense. He died for the whole world. Well, did he? What does that mean? Well, for the Calvinists, we're going to say the whole world is referring to the consistent good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ came not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. Not just for uh, God's chosen people of the Israelites, but for all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all peoples, all the world. It's all kinds, not all persons. It's a difference. Completely allowed by, by the Greek of these texts. And I think conceptually required. Because if we're going to say... Remember, this is the, the passage, read First John 2, 2. It doesn't say, uh, for, for he died for our sins and not only ours, but for all the sins of the whole world, where we can kind of hide behind the ambiguity of died. It says he was the propitiation. He was the atoning sacrifice for the sins. And it's the sins of the whole world in the same way that it's the sins of us. He is the propitiation for our sins. In the same way, the logic of this verse, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. If Christ turned away the wrath of God for our sins, if you want to read this verse like an Arminian, you have to say that he turned away the wrath of God against the sins of every single human being who ever has lived or does live or will live. You have to be a universalist. Christ had to have turned away the wrath of God. He had to have made God propitious. He had to have been the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, every single person. Well, if we've turned away the wrath of God, why are why are no, why is why is anyone condemned? Does God demand double payment? We'll see we'll see a problem with that later on. 
we'll, we'll look at this. We'll look at this verse more. We'll engage with this problem more when we get to the limited atonement. But but the point here is that the, the scriptures are telling us that one of the things that Christ did was he is the propitiation. He is, as I've and I pointed out, he is the atoning sacrifice. Propitiation in, in the Greek translates the same word used in the Greek New Testament in Leviticus 16 to talk about the atoning sacrifice that was required on the day of atonement in Israel. It, 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 was, it was the animal that atoned for Israel. It didn't just offer atonement. The sins of Israel were transferred from the people to the scapegoat, and the scapegoat was led out into the wilderness. It accomplished atonement for Israel. It cleansed the camp. It cleansed the land. It cleansed the people. It accomplished atonement right john the john the baptist picks this up in first john 129 when he sees jesus and he said behold the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world right he is specifically saying that jesus is the lamb of god well where do you get the lamb of god from from the day of atonement the lamb who actually accomplishes with its death Atonement, propitiation, the atoning sacrifice, the acceptable sacrifice offered to God for sins. If John the Baptist in John one twenty nine or 1 John 2, 2 by whole world means every single person, then you've got to be a universalist. You can't be otherwise. Right? But, but most of our Armenian friends, thankfully, want to at least be orthodox, and they're not universalists. They're going to have a concept of judgment. They're going to have a concept of hell. So what do we do with these passages? Well, they have to distort them. They have to twist them. Rather than just saying consistently with the rest of the New Testament that the good news is that the gospel goes to the whole world. Jesus died for all kinds of people. There's no more, there's no more Israel. There's no more, there's no more ethnic uh, requirements. The elect are now the Gentiles grafted in to the remnant of Israel. There's more to this. There's more to this propitiation. If we go back to Romans, let's go back to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, again, just ending this whole section on that there's no one righteous, no, not one. Starting in verse uh, 23, there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished and did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. That, that, that's, that statement where it says that he was the sacrifice of atonement. He was the atoning sacrifice. He is the propitiation. He is literally, propitiation translates as he is the mercy seated. The passage tells us that God presented him as the mercy seat through faith in his blood. We are mercy seated. Well, what's the mercy seat? The mercy seat was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. That's where once the sacrifices are made, God dispensed his grace. That, that was where the sins were atoned for. That's where mercy was dispensed. Jesus isn't just prevent, uh, provid, excuse me. Jesus isn't just, just provisionally sacrificial. Jesus is 
the sacrifice. Jesus is the mercy seat. He is the propitiation needed for God's people. In fact, Jesus uses this same, this same type of idea when Luke 18, uh, 9 through 14, when he's giving the two different prayers, the one of the Pharisee and the one of the tax collector. The Pharisee uh, you know, makes, his, makes his proud prayer, you know, thank you for not making me like these other men, these sinners, like these tax collectors. Whereas the tax collector stands far off. He can't even look up at God. He beats his breast and says, God, be propitious towards me. That's what, it, that's what it says. Some of our translations are going to say, have mercy towards me, a sinner. But it's God. Be propitiated towards me. Be propitious towards me. Let your anger, let your wrath be turned away from me because I am a sinner. I can't, I can't make God turn his wrath away from me. God must turn his wrath away from me. And he does it by sending his son, Jesus Christ, as the sacrifice as the atoning sacrifice. He accomplishes propitiation. God's wrath is actually turned away from us on the cross. It's not just possible. It's actual. Well, what about Colossians? Let's look at Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, talking here of Jesus Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. What is it saying? He sent Christ to make peace through his blood. Can there be peace where there's wrath? No. There can't be peace where there is wrath. Christ had to accomplish propitiation to turn away the wrath of God. Right. Let's look at Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 17 through 18. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for sins of his people. He might make a propitiation for the sins of his people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus is the actual propitiation for the sins of his people. Remember, this is set in the context of Jesus being shown to be better than all the shadows in the Old Testament. That's a, that's a major theme in the, in, in the book of Hebrews. Jesus is the better blank. Right? Jesus is the better priest because it, he doesn't need to atone for himself before he atones for others. Jesus is the better prophet because he doesn't need to speak for God. He speaks as God. Jesus is the better sacrifice. He's the better atonement. He's the better propitiation because he is the perfect spotless lamb that the other spotless lambs were pointing towards. It's a once and for all sacrifice. It doesn't need to be repeated every single year. 
Right? But what does he accomplish? He accomplishes atonement. He accomplishes propitiation. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28 says, So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sins, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins, to propitiate, to atone for. Jesus was the actual sin offering that bears our sin away from us. He was the actual scapegoat that accomplishes our atonement. He takes our sin out away from us. He bears our sins for us. Not potentially. He actually did it. He accomplishes what he came for. Right, going further, 1 John 4, we're going to go back to 1 John 4. This is also uh, going to show that 1 John is, is dealing with a theme. So the Armenians who want to point to the one verse in second in 1 John 2, 2 and say, well, he died for the whole world. Not only are they exegeting the passage uh, incorrectly, but there, there's, there's a theme. John picks this up other places. 1 John 4.10 says, um, excuse me, 1 John 4.10 says, this is love, not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for sins. As an atoning sacrifice, as the actual atonement, as the actual sacrifice, as the actual propitiation for our sins. And it's not because we love God. It says explicitly, not that we loved God. It's not because we love God. It's not because we had faith. It's not because we exercise faith here and now that we accept his offer of atonement. No, Jesus was the actual atoning sacrifice. He was the actual scapegoat. The blood actually saves us from the wrath of God. Where the blood is shed, the wrath is satisfied. It's on the cross that our sins were atoned for, where, Christ, where God's wrath was turned away because Christ was the propitiation. He propitiated God's wrath. He made God propitious towards us. He accomplished turning away wrath. What's another thing that the scriptures tell us? Scripture tells us also that the atonement accomplishes a reckoning. Now, reckoning is not a term that we use all the time either. Reckoning is is a is an accounting term. It basically means you're evening up the books. You're shoring up the numbers. Uh, you're transferring money from one ledger to another to make it balance. And in this sense, it's counting our sins as Christ's and his righteousness as ours. There's a double imputation. He takes on our sin. We take on his righteousness. God is, was punishing sins and imputing righteousness. We see this in Isaiah 53, speaking of the suffering servant. What does Isaiah tell us about the suffering servant? He tells us a lot. Isaiah 53, verse 6, says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the sins, the unrighteousness, our wickedness, the iniquity of us all. 
That's the imputation. Our, our, our sin is imputed to Jesus. Jesus becomes the sin bearer on our behalf. Our sin is reckoned to Christ. Our sin is reckoned to Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians, uh, this, this, this concept is repeated. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What does Jesus do? He becomes the sin for us. What happens for us? We become the righteousness of God. His righteousness is imputed to us. This is all through Romans as well. Right? So, and, and it's actually accomplished on the cross. It's not a potential. It's not an offer. It's not a maybe. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not like instant, uh, instant mashed potatoes, you know, just add water. This isn't instant, uh, you know, instant reckoning, just add faith. This was accomplished on the cross. Our, our reckoning was accomplished. The Bible tells us that atonement also accomplishes redemption. See, we use all these terms kind of interchangeably, salvation, redemption, uh, atonement, reckoning, right? All these kind of, we put them all together, but that's, th th these words have meaning. They have their own distinct concepts. So the Bible tells us that atonement accomplishes redemption. Well, what is redemption? Redemption is being set free from bondage. Right? Being set free from bondage is one of the things that the atonement of Christ accomplishes. It accomplished on the cross. It, it finished its work. Romans chapter 3, verses 24 through 25. <clears throat> starting actually verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, the redemption that came. That's telling us we have been, past tense, we have been redeemed. The redemption that came by Christ Jesus. How? Tells us in verse 25, we looked at before, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. The atonement of Christ, the propitiation, turning away of wrath, also accomplished our redemption. It's just not it's not just that wrath was turned away. Wrath was turned away, but we were also redeemed by the death of Christ. Past tense have been redeemed. In the first century uh, slave culture, uh, the term redeem or redemption would unquestionably have meant uh, a payment of a price to set a captive or a slave free and to transfer that ownership to somebody else or to grant them freedom. So a family member could redeem a family member out of slavery. It would grant them their freedom or, or one owner could buy a servant from another owner to transfer ownership. You're redeeming that person out of captivity. It's not an offer. It's a business deal. It's a contract. In fact, there was usually a signed contract. And in this case, it's an executed contract. It takes effect. It, 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 once the contract is signed, it achieves what it's meant to do, what you're contractually obligated to do. 
So if I, if I purchase a car, when I sign the title, the act of signing the title transfers ownership from the dealer to myself. It actually accomplishes transferring of the ownership. It's not potential. It's not saying we're, we're transferring ownership as long as you keep making your payments or as long as you, you know, as long as you pay us more later on, it actually accomplishes what is in the contract. The act of signing, it does it. It's an executed contract. In, in, in the first century, when you are redeemed, it's like that. It's like an executed contract. Once Christ paid for our redemption, we are freed from the bondage of, of slavery to death and to sin, and we belong to Christ. It's accomplished. We are, we are actually redeemed, have been, past tense. Uh, if we look then at Galatians chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3, here uh, Paul is writing to the church in Galatia. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hang who is hung on a tree he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the spirit we were redeemed and what were we redeemed from we were redeemed from the curse of the law we were redeemed from bondage to death which the law brings by Christ's substitution he came in our place but notice again he accomplished it we not it's not we will be redeemed it's not we were redeemed when we exercise faith it's we were redeemed by his death we were redeemed because he became a curse for us and where is that curse where did he experience that curse that curse came about when he hung on a tree that's when he redeemed us on the cross on calvary it's not just add faith. Ephesians 1 7. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. It's kind of in the middle of a long passage, but it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. In him we have redemption when? through his blood the redemption of his blood is the forgiveness of sins faith is not what saves us faith is not what redeems us christ does his death does his blood does faith is not the magical ingredient that 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 you once you mix it in suddenly poof now you have salvation no faith is the means that god uses to gift it to us. But Christ already accomplished our redemption. He already accomplished our salvation. He accomplished the forgiveness of sins by his blood on the cross. It was actually accomplished. We were redeemed at Calvary. Faith, that's, that's, just, that's just the highway that salvation drives on to deliver to us. Faith is the means that God gets it to us. It's not the mode by which we're saved. Let's look at Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. 
Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Um, I'll pick up in 13. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, by the way, uh, just as a tangent, that is a Trinity passage, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, referring to the same person, God and Savior, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. The blood of Jesus is actually what secured our redemption. He gave himself for us. Why? To redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. The blood of Jesus is what secures our redemption. Notice that Titus refers to the redemption of us. This is clearly a reference to the church as opposed to all people who are offered it in verse 11. So let's back up really fast. This is going to be an important distinction in, in, in the discussion between Arminianism and Calvinism. If we start back at verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Right? Christ came. The, gospel's a, the gospel is proclaimed to all people indiscriminate. We don't go around and try to, I mean, we couldn't. We couldn't go, are you elect? Well, let me tell you about Jesus Christ, because you know you're elect by, the, by once you are saved. All the elect are saved. We don't, we don't know. As the church, we don't know. We go around, and we spread the seed indiscriminately, and, and, and we water it, and we hope, and we pray. But God's the one who, who calls the elect. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live life-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Who's the us? Notice there's, there's the them, there's the all, there's the all people that the, the gospel is declared to. But who's the salvation for? Who did Christ die for? Who did he give himself for? us Titus is referring to the church it's not for all humanity we'll talk about that again as we get to the limited atonement next time another thing that the, that the Bible tells us atonement accomplishes a substitution or a ransom Christ died for us in our place he didn't just die as an atonement. He didn't just die as a propitiation. He didn't just die to redeem us. He died as a ransom, as a substitution. He died in our place. Matthew one twenty one. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. He will ransom his people. He will save his people. It's the same word. He did not make salvation possible. He actually saved his people. Right? It doesn't just say that he will he will maybe save the people from their sins. No, he will save his people. He has actually done it. He has accomplished it on the Christ, on the cross. Uh, let's look at back again at Ephesians chapter 5. This one's going to be kind of an argument from analogy, but it's an important one to make uh, because Paul Paul has to explicitly assume what we've been talking about for this for his analogy to work. So in Ephesians chapter five, 
This is actually talking about in the context of, of marriages, husbands and wives. Chapter 5, verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as... Remember, just as. Husbands are to love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands are to love their wives in the same way that Christ loved the church, giving their life up for her. The question is, should, should husbands then offer their sacrificial love to all women indiscriminately? Anyone who will accept his offer? Or to one particular woman? the one that he's covenanted to. That's the analogy that Paul is making. We're to, love our, we're to love our wives in the same way that Christ loved the church. Well, how did Christ love the church? He sacrificed for her. He died for the church. He didn't die for all people. He died. He offered a sacrifice. He offered his blood. He opened his veins for the church. It's the only way that analogy works. Uh, let's look back at Galatians. Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus gave himself up for me. For you, for us particularly, because he loved me, because he loved you, because he loved us specifically. It's not a general love of all humanity. He loved you, he loved me in a specific way and was willing to die for us. Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 through 4 say, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God the Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He was ransomed. He was delivered. He, kept, he delivered us from the bondage of sin. When did this occur? The passage tells us. The Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself up for our sins. When did that occur? Well, when he gave himself up on the cross. He died for our sins. He gave himself for our sins at the cross. He atoned for them. He propitiated them. He ransomed us. He redeemed us. When did it happen? At the cross. It's not just add faith. It was accomplished. Let's look back at Mark. Mark chapter 10, verses, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Right here he's talking to the disciples who want to know about who's, who's going to be first in their place in heaven and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and he answers them. He says, he, he's telling them to be humble. And he's saying, look, you, you have to live like the Son of Man did. The Son of Man didn't come to serve, but to be served. Or sorry, didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Right? A ransom is the exchange of one person or the payment of one price to set another free. Was he a ransom for all? No. He's a ransom for many, for, the, for the, the church. Let's look at Acts. Acts chapter 20, 
verse 28. Acts chapter 20, verse 28 says, uh, this is Paul's farewell address. Uh, he says in verse, in, in verse um, 28, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Here, Paul is exhorting the Ephesian elders. He's telling them to watch over the church. And who is the church? And why should they watch it? It's because Christ has purchased them. He's ransomed them. He's, he's, he's brought them out of, of captivity and bondage and slavery to sin. He has paid for it with his own blood when he died. His death was the payment. It's not a potential payment. It's not a down payment. That was the purchase price. He bought it. He paid the price that was due to the sins of all who he was representing on the cross. If you were represented in Christ on the cross, your sins were paid for. You were redeemed. You were ransomed out of captivity to sin and death. It was actual. He was an actual savior. He wasn't just a potential savior. He was an actual savior. Right? That's, that's important. That's important to remember. When we're talking to Arminians and they want to say, well, Jesus, Jesus died to offer salvation to all. And if you just believe, then you're, then you're saved. Well, no, I'm sorry. That's not, no, I was with Christ on the cross. My price was paid on the cross. I was ransomed on the cross. I was redeemed on the cross. The wrath of God was propitiated on the cross. God was made propitious towards me on the cross. It was accomplished not pending future faith. That's not what the atonement is. In fact, Jesus in his own words in the book of John tells us his purpose. The atonement was Jesus's purpose in coming. And he tells us Jesus came who? For his people. That's why Jesus came. He tells us in chapter 10 verses 11 to 16 I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. Here he's talking about, remember I said when, when the good news is that it's not just Israel, it's for all the nations. Here he's referring to all the nations. I have other sheep that are not of this pen, this sheep pen, that is not just Israel, there's Gentiles. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. That's the church. That's the church. He lays down his life for the church. Continuing on, chapter 10, verse 22. Then came the Feast of Dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple area, walking to Solomon's colonnade. The Jews gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus' answer is interesting. I tell you. I did tell you. 
but you do not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays his life down for who? His sheep. Does he say all sheep? No. In fact, he says he says he lays his life down for his sheep, and, and the ones who don't believe, those are other sheep. They're not his sheep. They're other sheep. Why didn't the Jews believe? Because they're not his sheep. He didn't lay down his life for them. He tells us specifically, he lays his life down for his sheep, for his church, for his people. Not all sheep. His sheep. John 17, 9. John 17, 9, this is in his high priestly prayer. He says, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world. Let me say that again. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Now, this is Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is Jesus acting as a priest, interceding as a priest does for his people. Who is it that Jesus is interceding for? Right, remember, petition and sacrifice were the two responsibilities of a priest in Israel. That was their job for the, for the people. They would petition and they would offer the sacrifices. And they always have the same scope and the same reference. The priests would petition for Israel and they would offer sacrifices for Israel. The petition and the sacrifices always had the same scope and the same referent. The same people were subsumed. They were the priests for Israel. They weren't the priests for the Canaanites. They weren't the priests for the Midianites. They weren't priests for the Ammonites. They were the priests for the Israelites. That's what the priests did. The prophets, the prophets could go out to the nations. They could declare the good news. They could call people to come in Israel. But only people who came in Israel, who were circumcised, who came into the covenant people of God, were under the authority of the priests. The priests offered position and sacrifice for the people. Who is it that Christ in his high priestly prayer is interceding for? His people. The ones that God had given him explicitly, not the whole world. Who is he the priest for? His people. Who did he offer sacrifice or petition for? His people. Who did he offer the sacrifice for? His people. His sheep. The atonement accomplished an actual result. It's not potential. It's not just add faith. It's not, it's not you know, uh, flash-dried instant salvation. Just add faith. It accomplished an actual cro- uh, 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 result. So did Christ's death actually redeem people? Or did it make salvation only possible? Clearly. Christ's death actually accomplished redemption. What was accomplished on the cross? Did Jesus obtain redemption that he set out to achieve? Absolutely. He redeemed us. He reconciled us. He ransomed us. He, he atoned for us. He 
propitiated God's wrath for us because we are the people, we are his flock that he came for. We are his sheep. God sent Christ to accomplish the redemption of his people, to actually save them. And all of this shows, all of these passages show that the atonement is effectual for a specific people and it was effectual on the cross. And really, this is the basis for our assurance. Remember, I mean, I, all of this goes towards our assurance. How can you know that you're saved? Because God guarantees our salvation because he is the one who accomplished it. It's not pending my faith. It's not pending my continued faith. It's not pretending me causing myself to live. I can rest assured in my salvation because my Savior is the one who already accomplished redemption. He already accomplished atonement. He already propitiated the wrath of God. He's already ransomed me. He's already redeemed me. God guarantees our salvation because he has already accomplished it. Charles Hodge wrote, The sin of Adam did not make the condemnation of all men merely possible. It was the ground of their actual condemnation. So too, the righteousness of Christ did not make the salvation of men merely possible. It secured the actual salvation of those for whom he wrought. End quote. Notice the parallel. The sin of Adam didn't make our condemnation possible. It made it actual. We died in Adam. That's the ground of our actual condemnation. And so the righteousness and the death of Christ didn't just make salvation possible. It made it actual. He actually accomplished what he set out to do. He actually achieved his atonement. And if he achieved atonement, if he turned away wrath, if he ransomed us, if he bought us, if he redeemed us. Then for the Arminian who says that all that happened on the cross, not just for the elect, but for the whole world, they either need to be universalists and say that, well, Christ did actually atone, all people will be saved. Or they need to say that God will demand double payment. That God has atoned for their sin, that he's redeemed them, that he's ransomed them, that he's turned away his wrath, that he's accomplished their, their atonement, but that he's still going to hold them to account. There's no assurance in that, assurance in that folks. Because that means that, that God could accomplish your redemption, he could accomplish your salvation, but in the end, in the final analysis, he could still hold you under blame. He could demand double payment. Your bill could be cleared. Your, your crimes could be expunged. The wrath could be turned away from you, but God will still look at you and say, I'm sorry, but you still need to pay for your sins. Double payment is unbiblical. Double payment is unethical. Augustus Toplady in the 18th century wrote a hymn that sums this up perfectly. I'm going to read uh, the verses of this hymn. There's about five of them. It says, from whence this fear of unbelief, since God my father put to grief his spotless son for me, 
Can he, the righteous judge of men, condemn me for the debt of sin, which Lord has charged on thee? Complete atonement thou hast made, and to the utmost farthing paid, whate'er thy people owed. How then can wrath on me take place if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled with thy blood? If thou hast discharged, procured, and freely in my place endured the whole wrath of divine, payment God will not twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. Turn then, my soul, unto thy rest. The merits of thy great high priest speak peace and liberty. Trust in his efficacious blood, nor fear thy banishment from God, since Jesus died for thee. That, that hymn reminds us that God doesn't demand double payment. Why can I have peace in my, why can I rest secured? Why can I, why can I rest easy? Why do I not have to be dismayed? Why do I not have to be in angst? Why do I not have to live in fear? Why do I not stay up at night worrying about the wrath of God? Why do I not have to keep saying the sinner's prayer and repenting over and over and over again, trying to be resaved every single altar call so much that my, my soul has stretch marks? Why do I not have to do that? as a Calvinist because I have assurance of my salvation. Not because I'm so great. In fact, I'm not. I, I, I'm not righteous on my own. But I trust in God. God has redeemed me already. In Christ, my atonement was secured. I trust, as the hymn says, I trust in my high priest. I trust in his efficacious blood. Because Jesus died for me. Thank you again for joining me here on this edition of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, condemnations, or imprecations, feel free to reach out to us at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com. Email me at freedthinkerpodcast.gmail.com or visit the Facebook group page. Next time, we're going to be picking up with the doctrine of limited atonement as we see, well, what comes next? If we are unconditionally elected by God, he has accomplished the atonement. Well, who is it for? The atonement was accomplished, but who's included? We've already kind of alluded to that, but next time we will look into some of the biblical defenses for the doctrine of limited atonement, also called particular redemption. We'll look at those. So thank you again for joining me this time on the Freed Thinker Podcast. Visit us next time as we discuss limited atonement. Thank you again. Good night and God bless.